Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. afternoon or good night however whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast happy 420 everybody i hope y'all are having an amazing fantabulous tuesday or wednesday or whenever and however it is that you are listening. Walter Mitchell, SB Nation, Revenge of the Birds. He is a great writer, he is a great podcaster, and he is back to chat with us for a good, really closer to an hour and a half today. Walter and I had a really great, great conversation, so I am excited to share that with all of y'all. We have some interesting disparities on Matt Ryan. We get into a little bit of a uh, contentious argument, shall I say, which, you know, may have been a little bit over the top on my end, but Matt Ryan's a fine quarterback. I just don't think betting on Matt Ryan to be good until 41 is an overly effective strategy. But we'll get to that and more later on and talk wide receivers, which is where I want to begin today's show because it transitions into what we got to talking about right off the bat with Walter Mitchell, and that is the fact that I, for years, have been of the opinion that you should not draft a running back in the first round. And that opinion evolved to say that you should draft the right running back. You have to be certain that you are picking the right running back in the first round. Because a guy like a Todd Gurley or a Josh Jacobs can change your offense overnight. A Christian McCaffrey can change your offense overnight. And so... Be certain that you are picking the right running back if you're going to draft in the first round. Well, lo and behold, this wide receiver class is once again testing my belief that you should avoid picking wide receivers early in the draft if possible because you can get really good wide receivers at the top of the draft and lower in the draft. It had always been my hypothesis but I'd never collected data on the idea of whether or not you can find a legitimate star wide receiver or at the very least a wide receiver one through the NFL drafts later rounds or early rounds. And so what I did was that I collected data at the wide receiver position for the top 25 wide receivers of the last eight to 10 years. So figure out where they ended up in the draft and whether or not that has some sort of correlation to the league average. And for those of you who are wondering what the league average is, the number of players who get a second contract in the first round is around 50%. 
second and third round is around 30%. The, uh, the fourth, fifth, sixth rounds is about 15, and the seventh round undrafted is about 5 to 10% of those players end up getting a second contract. And the bar we're using here is first round picks and top 25 receivers. Now, this is not exact math. There's no way to do it based on a sample of all the wide receivers of the past 8 to 10 years. I theoretically could do that, but it would take way too much time, and I've already done one four-hour experiment before. I ain't going to do it again. So we'll do those percentages by comparison to the percentage of the top 25 wide receivers that were picked in each of the rounds to see if really it's better to wait on a wide receiver. And if 25 wide receivers is too small a sample size, I attest that we got some names deep in this list. So without further ado, so here's the list of the top 20 that I named, or top 25 in no particular order. This is just a, a list of 25 wide receivers from the past eight to 10 years. We have Antonio Brown, Julio Jones, Odell Beckham, Mike Evans, Devontae Adams, Tyree Kill, Mike, Michael Thomas, Jarvis Landry, Stephon Diggs, Adam Thielen, T.Y. Hilton, Chris Godwin, Allen Robinson, A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Larry Fitzgerald, Calvin Johnson, A.J. Green, Keenan Allen, Demarius Thomas, Des Bryant, Amari Cooper, Deshaun Jackson, and finish off the list with Brandon Marshall. So those are the 25 wide receivers that we have on our list to determine the ranking based on draft picks. So we went 25 deep. 36% of those 25, so that would be nine, ended up being drafted in the first round. 36% of these wide receivers who are the top 25, they're legitimate number one wide receivers in the NFL, drafted in the first round of the draft. And that would be the number two overall pick, Calvin Johnson, who was regarded as a you know once in every 20 years prospect when he was drafted. Then we have third pick, Larry Fitzgerald, similar situation, regarded as a once in a generation type wide receiver in the 04 draft. And both of them end up becoming Hall of Famers. AJ Green, fourth. Again, AJ Green was regarded as a sure, he was one of the highest rated wide receiver prospects in the history of the draft. So AJ Green was again, one of these surefire bets, take him. There's no doubt that this person is going to fail, could be the number one pick in the draft, which all I'm saying for that is there's none of those in this year's draft. Guys who you could say with certainty are the number one pick. There are some people who rank Jamar Chase uh, as their number two overall prospect. I heard, um, Kevin Clark of the Ringer had a similar type thing where he had Jamar Chase as his number two overall prospect. Amari Cooper, number four pick. Julio Jones, number six pick. Mike Evans, number seven. Odell Beckham, 19. I'm sorry, Odell Beckham, 13. Sorry, Odell Beckham, 13th pick in the draft. Demarius Thomas. Demarius Thomas made five straight Pro Bowls. I did not know that until doing this research, but Demarius Thomas, 22nd pick, so later first round, same spot as Justin Jefferson, by the way. I know Justin Jefferson didn't make it on this list, but he's a case study of his own because 
very clearly the best wide receiver. And we'll talk a little bit about this with Walter. Very clearly the best wide receiver, but or very clearly the best wide receiver out of his draft class, but fifth wide receiver off the board. So Demarius Thomas at 22 and DeAndre Hopkins at 27. So a couple of them are late first round picks, but nine total first round picks who came from the group of 25. So then we go to the second round picks and there are seven of them. And remember the 30% I said, second and third round picks have about a 30% chance of getting a second contract. Well, among our sample size, 28% of second round picks end up on this list. Accounting for small sample size, of course, we end up with Mike Thomas at 47, Deshaun Jackson at 49, A.J. Brown at 51, Devontae Adams 53, Jarvis Landry 63, Allen Robinson also 63, and D.K. Metcalf pick 64. And it's not like having the later pick in the second round matters because look at the teams they went to. The Dolphins and the Browns later, the Jaguars and then the Bears and then the Seattle Seahawks, which is a pretty good team to have for your draft pick. So seven of the 25 go in the second round. Third round, we have Keenan Allen, 76th pick, Emmanuel Sanders, 82nd, Chris Godwin, and T.Y. Hilton. Godwin, 82, T.Y. Hilton, 92. Sorry, Godwin, 84, T.Y. Hilton, 92. So those wide receivers four of them end up going in the third round. And this is the part where I like to find intrigue from this because we got 64% of our sample towards the top. And then we have fourth, Brandon Marshall, only fourth rounder at 119. By the way, I put up a poll. You can vote on our Instagram, Comical Sports, if you're listening to this on Tuesday. You can vote on Jarvis Landry or Brandon Marshall because that poll is ridiculously close right now between who is a better wide receiver, Jarvis Landry or Brandon Marshall. Let's see what the number's at now, actually. Reporting live on the Take It Easy podcast. Uh, Right now, it is 52% for Brandon Marshall. So, anyways, then we have the late guys. And this is the thing where if you find the right guy, you can get a little hidden gem in there. Stephon Diggs, fifth-round pick. Tyreek Hill, fifth-round pick. Antonio Brown, sixth round pick, Adam Thielen, undrafted. Now, those guys are all really good, yet after reviewing the data, I think my conclusion is there should be no objection to taking a wide receiver in the first round. You can argue about the value of the wide receiver, the wide receiver position itself holding the value that it does. It's one of the least valuable positions according to their their second contracts, but it does appear that the best place to find a top wide receiver is indeed early, early in the first round. If you want to find the great, great wide receiver, they're going to come at the top of the first round where everyone can see just how great they are. You can find one in the later rounds. In fact, you could get a Juju Smith-Schuster in the second round. Like There are lots of different places to go to find wide receivers. The Pittsburgh Steelers built an entire wide receiver core out of second, and third, and fourth round picks. So it's entirely plausible, and yet at the same time, it does appear that if you want a stud wide receiver, the best place to do that is at the very, very top of the draft. 
And since there's a little bit of dispute on who that wide receiver is this year, it's going to be interesting to see when these wide receivers get drafted if they end up working out well. Because the other thing is, lots of wide receivers that get picked early don't end up panning out the way people hoped they'd be. But it does appear that early in the draft is still the best way to find your long-term wide receiver. You can find more gems than maybe at other positions, but according to the data, it's a little bit true, but not as true as I thought it was, that you can find great wide receivers all throughout the draft. You can, but I don't think it differs from any other position now reviewing the data. Again, I would need more to make a finite conclusion, but it is still interesting to see how people will scout this upcoming class in regards to wide receivers. So that is our case study on the top wide receivers and where you should draft them. Uh, thank you for listening. Now, without further ado, let's bring in our friend Walter Mitchell, SB Nation's Revenge of the Birds. Give him that support and love that you guys always do by checking him out. There's a link in the bio to that. Also by supporting our sponsors for today's show. Support for the Take It Easy podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and today we have an exclusive offer for our listeners. 20% off, plus free shipping, when you use the code TIE, that's T-I-E, at manscaped.com. Manscaped hooked me up with a bunch of tools and formulations from their Perfect Package 3.0 kit, including the best ball hair trimmer ever, the Lawn Mower 3.0. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TIE, T-I-E, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code TIE. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Take it. So how are you doing this fine morning? Good. I'm uh, gearing up for the draft and um, been writing an article. I just uh, yesterday watched the Alabama-South Carolina game from 2019. Um, didn't know what to expect. I don't think I saw it live or anything. And um, fascinating game with uh, Patrick Sertain on one side and J.C. Horn on the other. Um, and then, of course, the Alabama, well, Tua was quarterbacking um, in that game. And uh, to that cadre of brilliant wide receivers, which, by the yeah. way, I mean, Devonta Smith, I think I could make the case that of those great receivers, he really is the bell cow. And by the ones you're talking about, it's Devonta Smith, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and Jalen Waddle. All of them are top 15 picks, and they all happen to be on the same Alabama team from Correct. 2019. Correct. But whenever I, you know, put on a tape 
Devonta Smith just pops right off the screen, man. He's he is um, just electric in what he does and the way he gets open, and it's very impressive. I I, you know, I started to wonder if I had a choice between him and Jamar Chase in this draft, who would I pick? And for me, um, that's a hard decision. I I think I might go with with Devonta. What's the earliest that you would pick a wide receiver, do you think? Because I have a differing opinion from the rest of the crowd on this because of my thoughts on wide receivers. Well, it is a deep draft in wide receivers, so that sometimes pushes wide receivers down because teams have the comfort of thinking, well, you know, if we don't take a wide receiver in the first round, there, there are very good ones in rounds two and three and maybe even in round four. Um, and that's true this year. Uh, wide receiver class is very deep. As Robert Frost would say, lovely, dark, and deep. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, so, but it depends on your system and depends on, you know, like we, you and I were talking about some of the stars aligning in this draft. I mean, you know, to reunite Jamar Chase with Joe Burrow, or to reunite, you know, Devonta Smith with, with um, either Tua or Jalen Hurts. Tua or Jalen Hurts, or Waddle with Hurts, or you know, any of those combinations make a lot of sense to me because of the familiarity, and you know, and the familiarity for quarterbacks and wide receivers is huge, right? So. I, I like to think so. And the, the reason I brought it up is this is actually now that I think about it, I have it on my list of future podcast episodes. So maybe tomorrow I'll edit in the uh, the top 20 wide receivers. But the, the thing I've been interested in is you can get great wide receivers at any point in the draft. And it's like with running backs where you've got to be really sure about the wide receiver you're picking if you're going to pick a wide receiver at the top of the draft. Because uh, as far as I can remember, I think going back to Julio Jones, which was 10 years ago, I believe, next week. If, as far as I can remember, the best wide receiver drafted in the top 10 was Amari Cooper, I want to say. So you can find different, I guess, maybe... Mike Evans down at 13 would be another one, but there's not a lot of great wide receivers that you can get at the top of the NFL draft, at least in the last 10 years. So I'm always wary about taking wide receivers at the top if they're going to be complementary pieces. Well, in this year's draft, you not only have top level talent worthy of a top 15 pick, you got guys who are national champions and help lead their teams to, you know, in Jamar Chase, in the, you know, the Bama kids, Smith and Waddle, and, you know, and plus let's, let's be honest and say today, the way that, you know, running backs are really receivers. I mean, I have to put Najee Harris up there and Travis Etienne. Well, I was going to get to that at some point, but the wide receiver thing is interesting because I felt like I heard a lot of the same stuff last year with two Alabama kids who are top picks and C.D. Lamb, who's this physical beast of a wide receiver. And 
you know, they had all right rookie seasons, but then you look back and you're like, oh, wait a minute, Justin Jefferson was by far the best in the class, and he was the fifth wide receiver taken. Correct. And the other guys, I mean, Ruggs was the only one that was like just downright disappointing, but the other two were, you know, they were pretty average in Judy. And obviously Judy had problems with just lack of offensive talent and injuries, but CD lamb and Judy were both pretty, pretty average last year. Yeah. Lamb had, you know, lamb had a a pretty solid season. I mean, for a rookie, I, I don't, I think that the value you're going to get with a Henry Ruggs is going to be long-term. Um, I wouldn't base, you know, his, his future on what happened last year. I think that he'll, he's going to take off at some point. I mean, the talent. That's, is, that's interesting because I'm the other way. And I think it's just a bad fit from the jump trying to put him in that offense that sure. They like to spread it out now and then, and maybe losing Aguilar will open up opportunity for rugs but i look at it like they're all about short yardage and running the football it didn't make sense why they picked rugs in the first place. yeah but you got to threaten teams deep and he he does that and you know i mean gruden will know how to use him i i i, I loved rugs coming out but here's an interesting side note for you is that uh the cardinals have an assistant longtime veteran offensive assistant named Jerry Sullivan, wide receiver, coached by trade. And um, had the Cardinals been picking a wide receiver at number eight, they would have taken Jefferson. Um, Really? Yeah, well, Sullivan coached Jefferson for a year at at LSU. I mean, he had Chase there, too, and Terrace Marshall. Um, You know, he had that group of talented Tigers, and Yes, we're all. I, I love this stat so much that during the 2019 championship season, all three of them broke Dwayne Bowe's touchdown record at LSU. <laughs> Great <laughs> single season touchdown record. All three of them broke the record of 13. Like Chase oh. had 20, Jefferson had 19, and uh, Marshall had 14. I right. think they all broke the record. That's awesome. That's a great stat. That you should post that on. Uh on Twitter, man, you have these Twitter <laughs> stats. That one's a great one because, you know, I mean, those kids are special. And, you know, I mean, Sullivan just said, look, I've been around Jefferson enough to know, I think he's the most talented wide receiver in the draft. And thus far, you know, Jefferson has proven that. Uh, but he- Jefferson is, Jefferson's the one person you can look up and say, okay, that is a superstar. I still will say this forever, and this is one of my most viral posts ever, is that the the trade made before the draft last year for Stephon Diggs for the 22 pick in the draft is going to go down as the most even trade in the history of the NFL. Right. In the Bills flipping Stephon Diggs and the Vikings getting Justin Jefferson in return. Right. And and then if if you consider the disparity in salaries, <laughs> I'd say and it worked out well for the Vikings. Unfortunately, they still don't have any money to sign people with. But well, it's it's the type of move that helps teams remain sustainable for the long term, or for the Vikings remain in eight and eight purgatory. Yeah, Kirk Cousins eight and eight purgatory. Yeah, and if you're going to replace a guy like Diggs. You know, and you get Jefferson, makes you look pretty good. 
It does make you look pretty good. It's the type of move every GM dreams of is getting generational talent to replenish a team that's kind of stuck in the middle, get generational talent in the bottom part of the first round or the second round or the third round. It's what every GM in quarterback or in Kirk Cousins, eight and eight purgatory dreams of for the Falcons. It just meant they had to go to four and 12 and blow it all up. Right. But for the Chiefs, they got caught in purgatory and they nabbed Patrick Mahomes. And uh, for the Ravens, they were caught in purgatory and they nabbed Lamar Jackson. So every GM dreams of finding that generational talent in the middle of the draft. Yeah, in the case of Jackson at the end of the first round. Yeah, trading the 50th pick in the draft to move on. They turned the 50th pick in the third rounder into Lamar Jackson. Unbelievable. Yeah, that one worked out swimmingly for Baltimore, and it kept John Harbaugh's job because I'll never forget that John Harbaugh was fired. There was a CBS report, Ravens plan to move on from John Harbaugh at the end of the season. This was when they were 4-5, uh, and five and Lamar had just played his first game, and they won. And then they won, I think, six of their next seven, right. won the AFC North, and John Harbaugh got a contract extension. Right. yep. Hey, it's a perfect example of finding generational talent in those lower rounds of the draft. It's exactly what the Saints are praying for in this draft is that they can find generational talent with one of their picks. Yeah, and they're pretty good drafting and they 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 work trades pretty well in the draft. Um, they've always done that. I, I think they might even trade up in the first round for someone they really love and well, see that that's where the that's where the nervousness comes in because I also remember the the strangest trade I have ever seen in the history of the draft was the Saints jumping from twenty eight up to fourteen. I believe this is when Lamar Jackson was available. Yeah. They traded up from twenty eight to fourteen and picked Marcus Davenport. Right, which I had never heard of Marcus Davenport, and I come to find out. Yeah, our our draft guy Blake, he had a second round grade on Marcus Davenport. Yeah, because small school kid, you know, it's hard to grade those guys. Um, you know, he had a good senior bowl, um, but I wouldn't say it was great, great, great. But sometimes you just have a feeling about a player you just think is going to be just what you want. And Davenport has made some strides, and again, it's early. Well, that's the big thing is that now he's replacing Trey Hendrickson, which opens up a whole nother opportunity. Correct. And, you know, Davenport has never been short on talent. That's for sure. You know, he, you know, this could be a breakthrough season for him. I mean, he showed flashes last year, you know, but yeah, that they probably could have gotten Davenport at 28. Well, this is the other question that I'll throw out now. Is Dennis Allen the greatest coordinator that was the worst head coach? Because I feel like it's either him or Josh McDaniels. Is greatest coordinator that was the worst head coach? Yeah, well, Vic Fangio might be close behind. Oh, yeah. That's a good Um, one, too. You know, I think Pat Shermer is an excellent coordinator. I know we've argued about that a little bit. I know you think his offenses are bland, but um he's he's never had a quarterback better than sam bradford too yeah, and he i admit he that got a lot out of case keenum which tells me something about his ability to coach so you know they're you know wade phillips 
is another classic example. I think Wade Phillips belongs in the NFL Hall of Fame as one of the greatest coordinators of his generation. Um, is Buddy Ryan in the yes. Hall of Fame or no? Oh, yeah. Oh, he yeah. is in the Hall of Fame? Okay. Yeah, and he was an example of, you know, great defensive coordinator who, you know, was less than impressive as um, a head coach. Yeah, but I guess that would be unfair to him because he did have a couple playoff runs in there with the, the Eagles. Right, but... and they didn't go very far, but, you know, at least he won with them. With the Cardinals, he was awful. Yes, that viewer. <laughs> the only thing anyone remembers from the Cardinals is him fighting an assistant coach on the sideline. That's the only thing anyone ever remembers from his Cardinals. Yeah, career. I think that was actually with. I remember you. It was with Kevin McBride. I think they were on the Titans or something. But maybe. But yeah, I, I. Yeah, I remember that incident really well. Ryan threw a punch at him. You know, but but this is class. This is what you know, was part of Ryan's undoing in the NFL was his disdain for offense and offensive coaches. He yeah. made no bones about it when he got to Arizona. He was like, I just, you know, contempt for for um, often, most offensive coaches. And, and I, I had watched the, the 30 for 30 about the 85 Bears, you know, when it first came out. I've watched it a few times since then. And the idea, the, the madness and the genius is all fascinating when it comes to, you know, Buddy Ryan was the defensive head coach. Mike Ditka was the offensive head coach. And the offense and defense hated right. each other exactly. on the Bears. It's like there's madness and genius to it because both of them were just ridiculously talented and they knew that they were together going to win the championship but there was still that animosity once the the winning dissipated a right. little bit and this just in when you're a head coach you're the head coach of all the units not just the defense, not just the <laughs> offense but the special teams as well and you know you have you can't be <laughs> dissing your offense left and right uh, this is the thing I was scared about with Joe Judge coming in. It's like Joe Judge was the coach who was kind of like the rah-rah, do the college stuff, dive on a football in the mud kind of guy. Um, I, that video is still really funny. Um, but I found it concerning because I said at a certain point, the players will just – you can do all the rah-rah buy-in stuff, but what if the players just start saying, well, why do we have to listen to you? And why do we have to buy into what you're saying? Who who the hell are you kind of thing? And so that's kind of the undoing of other teams. I've talked about Vance Joseph before where it's never – it had never happened to me before where I was watching the, the last Broncos – or the last Raiders game in Vegas that wasn't the last Raiders game in Vegas because they had to come back a mm -hmm. year. And – I saw that. I was literally like, oh, there's no chance Vance Joseph keeps his job. They're just, they're over it. They pretty much just quit on the job. Like, there's no way he's going to keep his job past this year. And this was not when there were rumors that he was going to get fired. But they were, you know, that loss moved him to 5-10. and And I saw that. I was like, they cannot bring him back next year because the team has just given up on him. And I'd never seen it like be that visibly obvious before through the screen. And then lo and behold, Vance Joseph got fired after the last game of the season. 
Yeah. So that's the buy-in part that's difficult for coaches to obtain. Yeah, but the irony is if you talk to those Broncos players, the vast majority of them really liked Vance. Um, thought he was yeah. a fine coach. But, you know, you're victim of, you know, and I think they had more animosity towards the front office. No, because <laughs> for which part? Because Case Keenum was yeah, their quarterback, I mean, or because after they fired Vance Joseph, they brought know, in Joe. They Flacco. had Mike McCoy as <laughs> offensive coordinator. I mean, and fired him at midseason. I mean, Vance Joseph was handicapped the way that Steve Wilkes was ha- handicapped in Arizona, is with a highly conservative, no risk it at all, offensive coordinator who's, uh, you know, a proponent for the running game. And if you don't have the running game, you know, or play action game, you're going to, you're going to struggle. And, you know, um, you know, Mike McCoy's run in the NFL was by then over. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, and his offense was becoming anachronistic and, uh, you know, out of touch with 21st century offenses. So, you know, when you get saddled like that, it just takes all parts of the balls to work for you to be successful as a head coach. And that's where you and I have been discussing how, why teams are hiring like Cliff Kingsbury as head coach, because they just want to lock down, make sure that they got a good offensive mind locked in, you know, with a quarterback in tune with a quarterback they drafted and with the number one pick in the NFL draft. And that's how important that relationship is that it warrants, you know, a, a head coach who, who can relate to the quarterback and develop him. You know, in olden days, you could hire a Kingsbury to be an offensive coordinator, but the second you had success with a guy like that, he's gone. You know, he's a head coach mm-hmm. somewhere else. And, you know, that's the dilemma that the teams have today, that the, the old traditional, you know, um, head of the franchise, head coach, who's you know leader of men, and you know, and a guy who gets you flying out of the locker room and be be the overseer of all the all the units on the team. Those are that's kind of gone by the wayside in favor of these nifty coordinators who you know would you know if they were your coordinator, you wouldn't have them for long. Hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the numbers game. For example, baseball is the perfect example of that because they do not have managers that really make decisions anymore. It's a a lot of the the shadow uh, managing where the general manager has a game plan. They've agreed on the game plan. They go out, they execute it. And it's for the better for the team side of it. And it's interesting how that dynamic plays out in football because football doesn't have the equivalent of a manager they have just a play caller and I guess a defensive play caller but the offensive play caller becomes so important that you have to lock down that position like one way or another and you mentioned you know pairing offensive mind with quarterback and I've been interested by what the Jaguars went because they Obviously, Urban Meyer doesn't take that job without two reasons. One, having the number one pick, and two, having his exit at Ohio State. And I put exit in air quotes because it it feels like he got pushed out at Ohio State. 
And it's going to be interesting because we've never seen anything like what is going on in Jacksonville right now, where you pair the generational quarterback with a coach who has that established of a reputation at the um, at the college level. Now, you can, the, the argument could be made that if you'd given <laughs> Chip Kelly enough time, you would have seen something similar to what's going on at a what's going on in Jacksonville, but it's going to be really interesting because Meyer's going to be Lawrence's coach for at least the next five, six years, it would appear, just based on the contract they've handed out. So we've never seen anything like it. And it's really interesting when people try something entirely different than anything we've yeah. seen in football. And then, uh, you know, the interesting Sports Illustrated article about Lawrence this week where you know, he and his dad are saying that football's not everything to him. He doesn't play with a chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, he likes to take things mm -hmm. in stride, but he wants to be the best ever. You know, that's an interesting outlook heading into the draft. It's certainly different than... I love know. it. <laughs> I, I want to draft him even more now after hearing that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm ambivalent about that because even if that's the case, I mean, I think everybody should have a life. There's, you know, I mean, there's what you do. Yeah. There's I, irrefutable scientific evidence that the, the happiest people and the most fulfilled people are the most balanced people. When you have different interests, you're going to be happier and yes. more fulfilled when you're balanced in your time. Like, that's irrefutable, but it's also people confuse the, the winner's mindset and what the, the, you know, the Michael Jordan, whatever mindset does is that it, it drives you to put in the work and the work is what produces the results. The mindset doesn't produce the results. It's the work that is a byproduct of Correct. the mindset that produces but, your results. So there's different ways to get like to anyone results. who communicates to an audience, like a, a rhetorician, anyone who knows rhetoric knows you have to understand your audience when you're talking to them. And football fans don't want to hear that you, you know, you love going to rock concerts or love hanging out, you know, watching Netflix with your wife. Um, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear your noses on the screen preparing for the next opponent or trying to get better, something that, you know, in an improvement area or, you know, so it's it's really smart of players to when they do address the media or talk to you know pundits or you know um interviewers that they stay on task with that kind of messages that of course they're going to put in the work and of course they're hungry um to do the work that it takes but i'll give you a classic example um josh rosen um josh rosen came into the cardinals and he you know, in a short order, we learned that he's quite an environmentalist. I think it's awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, but, you know, like with two games left of the season, he was already talking about couldn't wait to get over to Florida to resume his environmental work, um, you know, cleaning up the beaches and getting plastic out of the oceans. and All that's great. But with two two games left in the season, you know, of one of the most dismal seasons the Cardinals have ever had, you know, fans didn't want to hear that. 
you know, maybe after the fact, like a month after the season's over, see that Josh Rosen's cleanup beaches or whatever wouldn't hurt so much. But, you know, the timing of that was, was, uh, was just felt wrong. I mean, you know, you, all your focus at that point should have been on the last two games, right? I mean, you don't want to hear about your mm-hmm. vacation plans. Um, and, and I think that's where today's athletes need to become a little more savvy and realize that, hey, when I talk to the media, I'm talking to my fans. And when I'm talking to my fans, I better tell them what they want to hear or I'm inviting trouble on myself. And this is why I still say to this day, I wish Josh Rosen had been a great quarterback because it would have been pushing against the narratives because Josh Rosen says all the things and gets accused of all the things black quarterbacks get accused of all the time about being too outspoken. They know too much for their own good. They say the things that people don't want to hear, whether because they don't want to admit their own privilege or whatever it may be. And Josh Rosen was that guy who was outspoken, like, hey, I'm really into politics. Hey, my parents grew up, like, I grew up with a lot of money. My parents are Ivy League graduates, one of whom is now a lawyer. And I am, I'm this guy. I'm just going to say what I want to say. I have strong opinions about politics and anti-Donald Trump and being an environmentalist. And it's the fact that it was coming from a white quarterback not just that a rich white quarterback, it would have pushed against so many different narratives had it worked out well for Josh Rosen. And I can still go back and watch those combine videos where people were being scared off of Josh Rosen because they were afraid of what he was going to say. And then look back now, three years from now and be like, oh, the world has totally changed. Like this just did not age well for the people who were scared because Josh Rosen is too outspoken. So I, I just wish Josh Rosen would have been great because he would have had great sound bites that push against the narrative of what we expect from athletes and especially white. Yeah, athletes. and he, um, you know, I mean, when he got drafted number 10, you know, he gave that pissed off interview chip on his shoulder. I'm going to prove everyone wrong and win multiple Super Bowls which even as an excited Cardinal fan getting a quarterback of the future, I bristled at that. I was like, no, don't go there. Um, You know, I mean, (laughs) saying I'm going to win multiple Super Bowls and doing it are two completely different things. And as you know, and anyone should know, I mean, just, I mean, I'm, I live five minutes from Gillette stadium. Um, and I keep close tabs on the Patriots and Bill Belichick and have learned so much football from the man. Um, and that is a word playoff and Super Bowl are not in his lexicon during the regular season. The only time he will utter the words are when they're in them. And I think that's so <laughs> smart. It's also, you know, I mean, he... Unlike any other coach, I think he understands the football guys and how vindictive they can be. Um, You know, I mean, you don't tempt fate that way. You just don't, and you shouldn't. Um, It's just very smart to just, you know, there's a certain hubris that comes with making cocky predictions of, you know, way ahead of yourself 
it's just inviting begging for trouble when you fall miserably short i mean here rosen said he was coming in with such a chip on his shoulder and then he he had a very uneventful and lackluster rookie season um i got i'll give him credit he hung in there and took a pounding behind what was the worst offensive line in the league because and Mike McCoy, and Mike McCoy, and McCoy and having Mike McCoy. been fired and then playing for Byron Leftwich, who I thought did some good things with Josh, you know, and, you know, and so, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you got to know, again, you got to know your audience, you got to know what's going to fire people up and what's not, and what's going to make sense and what won't. And, uh, and and the Trevor Lawrence thing, bringing it back to that and the chip on the shoulder is what possible chip could Trevor Lawrence have on his shoulder? Because he was the number one high school recruit. He won multiple state championships at Georgia. He His only loss was like in the playoffs of his senior year in high school. Gets to Clemson. He takes over his freshman year, they go on, win the championship, comes back the next year, undefeated season, losing the championship. Next year, their only loss was to Notre Dame, and he didn't play in that game. Their one loss was the one game he didn't play in until the playoff when they lose to Ohio State. So he's won a championship, has two total losses in his entire collegiate career. He had two losses, and he lost like four games in high school. So he's going to lose more games by the end of October than he lost in the last six years yeah, like, of playing football. Like Kyler with Murray. The um, and those situations are so interestingly analogous. The Cardinals and hiring a college coach in Kingsbury with the Jaguars hiring a college coach in Meyer, albeit a college coach with a much um, more impressive resume. Um, but also um, some baggage um, and kind of lengthy baggage. Um, so, but yeah, more specifically, the last place he played, also, or the last, yeah, place and, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Urban Meyer was a motivator at, in college, but can he be in the pros? And uh, this quarterback decision is going to be huge for them. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to answer your yeah. question is if I'm Trevor Lawrence. The way, you know, he got outplayed by Justin Fields in that last game would be a chip on my shoulder. I, that would not sit well with me. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be, I'm going to hope I f- play Fields again. And, you know, the irony is I think Fields is a better fit for the Jaguars than, than Lawrence. And um, because of Urban Meyer's preferred style of play. And we've talked about that. Uh and it wouldn't shock me if they wound up taking fields. Um, even though now, I mean, Jaguar fans have been um, sending money donations to uh, Lawrence's and his fiance's uh, charities. And Well, did you also hear the report that came out from no. around the NFL yesterday? 
So uh, it's now reported that uh, that Trevor Lawrence has been in possession of the Jaguars playbook for about six weeks. He's been working through plays like a normal offseason with the uh, with some guys on the team, potentially. Now, they're not allowed to have like formal contact, but he's been working through the Jaguars playbook. Oh, all right. Then that sells that. So they're going to take Lawrence with the conventional, you know, everyone's been saying it for three years and good for them. Um, now let's keep an eye on the yeah. Lawrence Meyer dynamic because uh, you know I we'll see if there's a chemistry there or not. Now it certainly helps that he would have the playbook in hand and been working on that. So you know, um, but uh, see, this is the other thing, and and this is where things have gotten sort of curious with the Cardinals is that sometimes when you hire a college coach. Um, the instinct from the general manager and from the front office is to like sort of school them in how the NFL works and, you know, sort of impress upon them why, you know, why, for example, Trevor Lawrence should be a better NFL quarterback than Justin Fields. And that's what's happened to Cliff Kingsbury. Cliff Kingsbury is not running his traditional offense in Arizona. And he, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that, we've talked about that before. It's like a mutated version of the, yeah, the mutated, uh, I, I think is a euphemism. Um, you know, I, it's, I mean, it's really nothing like what any of us thought we were getting when we thought we were getting an air raid um, offensive guru. So, um, I mean, Mike Leach would laugh at this offense. Um, I mean, I mean, he'd make (laughs) jokes out of it um, for sure. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, um, the K raid, it's the ground raid and, um, with some few passes to DeAndre Hopkins and, you know, and herein lies some of the issues or that, especially with personnel is that, you know, and what the Cardinals are going through now is that, that, that. There are some players in college that were great college players, but will they, do their games translate well to the NFL? And It's so funny that it feels like Cliff Kingsbury is conforming to the NFL when the whole point of bringing in Cliff Kingsbury was that he was a nonconformist who ran this crazy air raid scheme that he was about to bring to USC before right. taking the job with Arizona. Well, and now, now he has a running it. game coordinator, Sean Kugler, who was just given that title and, you know, um, which is an interesting promotion during this off season. And Kugler's done a really good job with the offensive line. Um, I'm not yet convinced he's getting them run blocking the way they should, but because of the heavy run running game that they've been featuring, um, but hopefully that happens this year. And there were strides he made with some of the players towards that, and they're working in that direction. And I know they want to be physical and, um, you know, they got a heck of a all pro center now. Who's just that. And so, but, but this has morphed into what, what basically Cliff Kingsbury's become in Arizona is the quarterback coach, which he's been all along for and passing game coordinator, um, for Kyler Murray and, you know, his roles just sort of morphed in that direction. I would say as 
you know, in terms of running the team, I think it's just, you know, it's like a, there's a, a trinity going on. I think there are three head coaches or co try coach head coaches um, because I think there's equal shrift for um, Vance Joseph as defensive coordinator because of his experience and for Jeff Rogers um, as special teams coordinator who might be the best coach of the three of them. Peter Schrager of NBC or um, ESPN, um, he, uh, or Good Morning Football or whatever he's from, I really... I know he's on the NFL Network, but I think he also does games for Fox as a side. Yeah, reporter. Fox, that's it. I really like that guy. And of course, he's he's kind of a Cardinals fan, I can tell, um, which makes me like him even more. But he had the, has the Cardinals trading up to number seven in his mock to take um, Kyle Pitts. And giving up, <laughs> giving up this, the 16 pick and then first and third round picks in 2022 to go up to get. See, Kyle Pitts just needs to be labeled as weapon. That's just his his position is just weapon at this point. And uh, my my favorite joke, and I made this again, is that there's now the Bengals fans are calling their pick at five the Civil War between the Panay Sewell people and the Jamar Chase people. Right. And then I, I brought up the joke that then all of a sudden the aliens start invading and it's just Kyle Pitts pulling up in a spaceship <laughs> to take the number five pick. If that if one side's going to be a civil war, then he's the alien invasion that happens during the civil war because that dude is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, then it becomes Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, pretty uh, yeah, much. Intergalactic <laughs> Star Wars, you know. I, I'll tell you what, I'm... I, and then you've just got Joe Mixon chilling on the sideline, just confused by everything that's going on. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking the other day that we ought to, sometime this week or next week, um, do a reverse of the mock draft that we did, and I take the odds and you take the evens. Absolutely, we can do another one of those. Because right. next week is draft week. Right. We gotta we gotta get all this content together before the draft. Right, because you know that's taking it from those angles and doing and flipping the picks from those spots. It'd be fascinating to see then compare what our first mock looked like to what our second. And I, I, you know, I think we both do it to what we think are the best fits for these teams. Now, seeing as you just told me that Trevor Lawrence has had the, you know, if that's true, if he's had the Jaguars playbook, then you know Daryl Bevel, who's the OC, is giving it to him. Then and then they're yeah. doing charity work already with Jacksonville fans. Then I'll go ahead and take Lawrence with the first pick, even though I, if it were me, I'd take Fields over Lawrence for the Jaguars. Um, you brought up the exact reason why we did a way too early mock <laughs> draft with our draft guy. So we did a mock draft back the week where the Pro Bowl usually happens. So like the week before Super Bowl week, we did a way too early mock draft so we could go back and laugh at how bad we were at evaluating back at that yep. point. And it was like we had Caleb Farley as the four pick. We had Sertan going six to the Eagles. Zach Wilson fell to the Panthers at eight. Yep. We had Gregory Rousseau at to 10 and – 
Yeah, there were some funny ones in here. Kyle Pitts fell all the way to 15. Yeah. Like, this is, again, like, this was just funny at the start. Trey Lance goes to Vegas. Like, we were – we didn't have the intel yet because teams were giving you uh, some insight into what they were going to pick, for better or for worse, because, again, the draft is pretty much a crapshoot. But it's fun to go back and look and see yeah. what we had based on intel before everyone started paying attention to the draft because, you know, everyone does the evaluation at that point. Yeah, Steve Kime, the Cardinals GM, says something that I, you know, kind of – appreciate every year he says that you know as scouts we um we tend to come april we tend to trick ourselves and, and mm-hmm. move some when move you move away from all the great scouting we did back in the fall yes and this is a uh this is a tried and true thing i can't remember exactly what it was but i'm interested in like psychology and stuff like that is that Basically, someone who's an expert in something needs less information to make a right decision, and someone who's not an expert in something needs more information to make a correct decision. So if you're an expert at what it is you're doing, you need less information, which is a problem when there's like a three-month gap for when – well, no, four months for teams who don't make the playoffs between – the end of the season and the draft right. it's just too much time and too much analysis and then all of a sudden you have the Bengals going from civil to chase civil to chase and then the civil war with aliens of kyle pitts when kyle pitts might be a guaranteed hall of famer but he also might not because kyle pitts used to be 15 on our mock drafts so it's really confusing how yeah. it changes because there's just nothing else to do and people talk themselves in and out of different players sure. yeah um and that's why an early mock actually then it'd be interesting to go back and see which one turned out better for for the players who were picked because sometimes you know like like Steve Kime says you know we double cross ourselves that the players we fell in love with in the fall and suddenly you know we're like you know overthinking it and um you know, so those early prospects, the the one who stood out to me, who, in my opinion, might not even go in the first round that you mentioned is Caleb Farley. I, I don't know how any team could commit a first round draft pick to him. Certainly the talent is there and it's, it's worthy, but had the ACL, then he was switched from wide receiver to cornerback highly successfully in one season, albeit. So again, the 10,000 hour rule, you know, um, I remember the Cardinals draft uh, drafted in the third round, Brandon Williams, a cornerback at Texas A&M, who was a running back turned uh cornerback for one season at Texas A&M. And Brandon Williams was just never instinctual at the position. Um, you know, I mean, again, the 10,000 hour rule. And then now, He's got the back issue to where he can't even work out. So you don't even know. You can't even see him on grass right now. How do it's you, always tricky with these cases. How do you invest a first-round pick? So this is the thing I've always found so fascinating about the draft is just the purely God-given talent guys. And whether or not the skills actually matter when you're doing these evaluations. There's three examples I always point to. It's 
a wide receiver who had 11 catches in college. It's a, and well, this year there's a defensive end who had two career sacks in college who might be a top 15 pick and he only keeps rising on draft boards at this point. And then it's a guy who made third team all Mountain West, but was the 10th and was supposed to be the first overall pick in the draft. <laughs> and it was the first person, DK Metcalf. Second is Jalen Phillips. Right. And the third one being Josh right. Allen. Like it's Josh Allen. I saw this the other day because Mel Kiper went back because of Trevor Lawrence. He went back and found out who are the 10 highest rated prospects at quarterback he ever had and number 10 on that list was josh allen and it was his highest rated prospect since andrew luck and now trevor lawrence being higher but it was case perfect case of terrible in college josh allen played terribly in college because let me tell you as a san diego state fan there were not very many good quarterbacks other than to, to beat Josh Allen for third team all Mountain West. Like there were not great quarterbacks in the Mountain West at that point. And so Josh Allen was just so ridiculously gifted with the physical gifts that he was going to be the number one pick in the draft regardless. He ended up not being because of just who was picking at one and then three. And it's crazy to see it all play out over the last three years in the ride Josh Allen's been on DK Metcalf, same thing. He fell in the draft, but someone took freaking John Ross <laughs> at number nine right. ahead of Patrick Mahomes. And, you know, people get excited about the speed guys and DK Metcalf only had 11 catches and that was used against him. Same thing as AJ Brown. It was used against him that he had played at Ole Miss alongside DK Metcalf <laughs> and he fell to the second round. It's weird how these evaluations work out, how no one really knows exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Josh Allen, actually, the thing about him was there was like with Mahomes at Texas tech, you know, he was on like 500 teams or in Mahomes cases, he didn't even make a bowl his last year. Um, but there were those wow moments and, you know, so you have those on tape, and Josh Allen had plenty of those at Wyoming. And then he finished off his career there with a really good bowl game, bowl game win um, where he was accurate. You know, he was he was in stride in that game, and it gave people, you know, um, hope. And then he, he accounted for himself well at the Senior Bowl. Um, so, you know... Uh, sometimes it's where you play too. I mean, you know, why? Oh, of course. You can go back to that Mel Kuyper list and he's got, uh, <laughs> it's amazing. Two of those 10 greatest quarterbacks that he's ever recruited ended up being like Ryan Leaf and Drew Bledsoe. Like sometimes it's a matter right. of just fit. And unfortunately the Chargers ruined right. a lot of those. And, I mean, Bledsoe <laughs> was a good quarterback. I mean, he wasn't great, but he was yeah. good. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that was surprising from Kuiper that, you know, he's usually pretty much an accuracy guy when it comes to quarterbacks. And that was the worry about Josh Allen. Um, but Brian Dabo has, Dabo has done a wonderful job of getting, um, good, solid, accurate passing out of Allen. And of course he's, you can't, 
you can't bring him down at the back end of that pocket. He's like the Statue of Liberty. I mean, I've never, I've never been more afraid in my entire life to the point where when Josh Allen rolls right, there was one hilarious moment. It was in the um, the Colts game, the the Colts playoff game against the Bills, where he took the snap, and I basically was saying as he took the snap. Don't let him roll right. right. Don't let him roll right. Up, oh, you let him roll right. Up, oh, there he right. goes. He's rolling right. He's going to complete it 20 yards to Gabriel Davis. Oh, there's Gabriel Davis, 20 yard completion. I could like know it just right as he's rolling right. I'm like, oh, you, you, no, right. you messed up. Can't let him roll right. And I'll tell you <laughs> what, as dynamic as, as um, Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray are in the open field, a guy defensive backs do not want to see running wild into the secondary is Josh Allen. Because he's larger he's than most larger linebackers. He's not going down easy. <laughs> Put it that way. It's the same thing with Justin Herbert. People don't realize Justin Herbert is the size of like a linebacker, like a, a, a Sam linebacker in the NFL, but he happens to play quarterback. It's just... And then there's Cam Newton, who's bigger than the tight ends he's throwing to. Like, those guys are just ridiculously right. big. <laughs> but I would say of all of those, my opinion is Josh Allen is the toughest. He's like Elway tough, and Elway didn't have wheels. But I don't even remember Elway winning the Super Bowl and, like, crunching in from the one-yard line on his screen. The, the, know, famous, uh, the famous helicopter, helicopter video. Yeah, exactly. I mean... You know, he, that Josh Allen is, is a baller, man. I mean, he'll run right over you to win a game. That's what you. It's the wow factor that I was talking about before. And, you know, and he's got that unbelievable arm. I mean, he's, I I don't think anyone throws it as long as he can, um, you know, and standing, he can throw, flick a ball 50 yards without even, you know, stepping. And that used to be the problem for him. And now it's a strength because he's harnessed the rest of the skills. It used to be yeah. a problem that he would just huck the ball 20 yards over wide right. receiver's head. Or, you know, he'd try to make something out of nothing and then end up taking a 30, which he still takes the 30-yard sacks. He had one of those in, uh, I think it was the Chiefs game, where he takes the 30-yard sack. Yeah, but that's been – Sometimes – And Kyler Murray's had that problem in a different way because – that has been Josh Josh Allen's Achilles heel is that sometimes, you know, he's too um, too courageous in the pocket. You know, I mean, there is such a thing. I mean, I've never seen a quarterback so fearless as he is in a pocket. He is just, he's locked in downfield. If he feels pressure, he just stiff arms and try to feel his way and almost, it's so hard for anyone to take him down. I mean, he's just very strong on his feet. And then, but. And I'll throw out your guy, Justin Fields. He could be in that category too. Uh, you know, so, but in Allen's case, he's just such a daunting figure. Um, he's like Ben Rob, Ben Roethlisberger, only Ben's not never been that strong. I mean, he's always been really strong, but, but, um, you know, Josh Allen's like the uber mensch of quarterbacks. I mean, he's just physically dynamic. And yeah, but you're right. But here's the thing. When players, defenders converge on him in the back of that pocket, that's when he tends to get dragged backwards. 
and he still tries his best to try to escape from that, which, you know, and the momentum of the defenders, and if at that point one of them can get him, grab him by the arm and drag him down, then he's then he can't resist. Um, but you got, I mean, he is something else, I'll tell you. I mean, when if you have a quarterback who's fearless in the pocket, that's in this day and age, that's pretty dang special. Yes. Mahomes is the prototype, and that's what you can build off of. It's so useful to have that guy. And I'm going to be wrong forever about Josh Allen. It's now just a matter of how good is he going to be? How wrong am I about Josh Allen? And I, it's the great, like, I did not see the greatest single season improvement of any quarterback in the history of the NFL coming. And now, you know, the sky's the limit for Josh Allen. Like, it's incredible how good Josh Allen is at quarterback because it's a lot of the wow yeah. factor stuff is, I've seen things that other people can't do. And we, you have to, again, this is not my thing. I heard this from Bomani Jones one time, so credit where credit is due. It's like, why do we still trick ourselves into thinking the guy who can do less is the better prospect? For example, Mac Jones going at pick three is that Mac Jones is not more athletic and does not have a stronger arm than Fields or Lance which is funny that you would want the guy with less skills considering Justin Fields is, according to one account, the greatest high school quarterback that has ever graced <laughs> the face of the earth. And that uh, it, he is unbelievably, like head, head over heels above Mac Jones. I just know this from watching like three game tapes. You just know Justin Fields is just so much better than Mac Jones, even if Jones is a more, "Quote unquote complete prospect," which might be a little bit of code. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Um, I mean, Jones is what he is. He's a, he's a, a point forward quarterback. Um, got good size, and he's and he gets the ball out and to a multitude of 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 uh, of, of skilled players. I mean, he's a, he's a really good distributor of the football and he's smart and he has touch he has, throws a very catchable ball a soft ball that's right on the hands more often than not you know he's not going to wow you with his you know legs but he does enough sort of brady s to shuffle around feeling pressure and he hangs right in there he's 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 tough um there's a lot to like you know, today's game, and you know, in the old days, you wanted Daryl LaMonica and all these, you know, flamethrowers in the vertical passing game where you could, you know, just throw, you know, Michael Vick, throw a 70-yard bomb and, you know, um, and have guys running underneath them. The game's changed. It's too fast now. The vertical passing game is still a romantic notion, but it's unrealistic, you know, and, and this is to Bruce Arians' credit. He tried to do it with Brady and realized, you know what? Let's just turn, let's just turn the offense over to Brady and have him do what he does best, um, which isn't a vertical passing game. It's he hits the vertical passing game after he's dinked and dunked you to where the point where you give up deep passes, you know. And 
Yes, when Scotty Miller gets Correct. open deep at the end of the half because the Packers defense is playing Perfect really poor example coverage. Of the guy you wouldn't really expect it from either. You know, um, it, you know, so, but today's football is now because of the speed of defenses, it's about matchups and it's about separating early and it's about short to intermediate passing RPOs, you know, playing in behind, getting passes in behind the second level. Um, and then in front, if you, if the second level retreats back, too far then you go underneath on the first level pass into the running backs and um you know it's a simple formula for success and today you don't need a josh allen type cannon arm to run a run a really good offense you need a guy who's you know got a like kirk cousins kirk cousins is a flamethrower um you know he's he's just an accurate you know matt stafford I mean, Matt Stafford, you know, his arm isn't the way it used to be, but it's 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 good in everything that he does. You know, I mean, and that's the thing I think with Mac Jones is that he can make all he threw excellent deep passes at Bama when they were open. I mean, he's fine, and he's got good timing with his receivers, and he's smart. You know, it's, it's, you brought up a point that I like to joke with all the time is about. The deep passing game. I'm like, name me a quarterback who doesn't throw deep passes. Because that's the game I always like to play. Who's a quarterback who doesn't throw deep passes? Well, and actually, (laughs) if you have the stronger arm, it can usually get you in trouble. Because, you know, you in this day and age, too, if you've got fast receivers, you better go. And, you know, in my day and age, this is how we did it. We even counted it out. Was one, two, three throw on the deep pass um and give it some air wow. you know and and if you hold on to it too long you're gonna underthrow the ball even with a great arm um you know there's a timing to deep passes that's important and um mac jones can do that and any, any of these guys can do that they can go one two three throw and put it up there um and give it some air time and let a receiver run underneath it if it's on on track you know so but times are changing in these offenses and interesting thing was i heard today that the 49ers are sending quite a contingent to see trey lance today with a designed workout of things they want to see him doing so that says to me you know that maybe they haven't completely made up their minds at number three and are just doing all their due diligence. Um, and I've wondered all along whether the Mac Jones thing was smokescreen. Um, it, it has to be. Like, I just, I assume that they're a little smarter than that to, to actually be considering taking Mac Jones. Like, it seems totally insane that they would take Mac Jones over Justin Fields because – I, I I haven't found anyone who's saying Mac Jones is better than Justin yeah, well, Fields. Athletically, other than right. maybe I a mean, couple people not, here and there. I mean, Justin Fields ran a four four his pro day. I mean, that's puts him in rare quarterback company. Um, and look at his play in the playoffs. You know, and, and this past season he was outstanding. Um, 
he outplayed Trevor Lawrence uh, and in, in the playoffs and by a considerable margin, actually. Look, if you didn't know the difference, who was everybody's unanimous choice for number one pick in the draft, I don't think you would have picked Lawrence after watching that game. If you didn't know better, um, you'd probably say, oh, Fields. You no, know? of course. So, but, yeah, I mean, what I don't get either is, is um, you know, uh, the Jets situation with Zach Wilson. I, I don't understand that over Fields. I don't understand that at all. Um, I do understand. I can make the case either way. Like, I, to be fair, the only Zach Wilson tape I watched was him losing to Coastal Carolina. So, again, I'd like to make that joke, is that I hope he's really good so I can always joke well, that Coastal he lost Carolina's to Coastal good. Carolina. They're good. Oh, of course. Yeah, the reason I loved it so much is because I'm a San Diego State guy. So every year there's a crazy group of five school that we adopt. Sometimes it's row the boat, PJ Fleck. Sometimes it's UCF. I still have in my closet a national championship UCF <laughs> T-shirt um, I, that I bought during that magical year. I still <laughs> wear it. It's the national champions 2018 Love UCF. It. But last year, the Chanticleers were that team right. that everyone adopted as uh, the group of five team that's going to just throw a giant turd into the middle of the college <laughs> football punch bowl. Yeah. And speaking of San Diego State, <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, you were going to make your case for. Oh, I'm just, all I had to say is I could see it either way. Like, I think there's a chance Zach Wilson is awesome while Justin Fields becomes a Hall of Famer. I'd take Justin Fields at two, but I also don't want him to go two because I know the Jets are going to ruin him. So going to the 49ers is a more ideal situation for him. But just because Justin Fields is going to be awesome doesn't mean I don't think Zach Wilson yeah, I mean, is going to be awesome. Wilson had a really but... fine season. But he's not, you know, I mean, he's not, didn't play in a Power 5 conference, you know. Yeah, right. He didn't play I in mean, any conference. <laughs> I don't the level of competition. I mean, when you have fields playing against big, big 10 defenses and then in the playoffs and, you know, and, um, and Trey Lance, I think anyone probably realizes he's one or two years away from, he'll have to. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I've not seen a single right. Trey mean, Lance tape in my entire time. So I'm taking other people's He needs a Mahomes year of, you know, behind a veteran quarterback more than likely. Um, it's why the Falcons would be the perfect pick at four. <laughs> yeah, if you're ready to give up on Matt Ryan, which I don't see why they would. Well, Matt Ryan, the reason I said that is because Matt Ryan has two right. years left on his contract, just like Alex Smith did Good when point. the Chiefs exactly. took Mahomes. And he's 35, which I think is obviously he played better than Alex Smith because Alex Smith's the ultimate game manager. But Alex Smith, I think, was 34 yeah. when they drafted Mahomes. Alex, Alex Smith was never an NFL MVP. This is true, but Matt Ryan was barely, barely one. <laughs> what do you mean, <laughs> barely one? Come on, man. Yes, yeah, so if you go, not the season he was unanimous, but if you go back and look at the rest of Matt Ryan's career, there's never any season where he's a top five MVP except well, that Well, he's one right year. up there every year. He's got, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not that he's bad. It's just I'm I'm in the Matt Ryan is not a Hall of Famer camp, so that's another part of why it sounds like I hate on him a little too much. But he's not it's not bad at all. It's the the MVP season helps him, but I don't think he's had another single top five yeah, finish we'll in the MVP. Get him Kyle Pitts to go with uh, Julio Jones and <laughs> Calvin Ridley, and look out. I'll tell you what, that offense could be unbelievable. Give everyone nightmares. Um, I, if I were them, I wouldn't even Oof. open the phones. I, I would, I would take pits right then and there. And you know. I, I think I might agree with you. Because if you're going to, if you're going to stick with Matt Ryan for the next three, four years, which I think might doom your, uh, no, your team my, anyways. You know, but Ryan gives it's. You, I mean, he's good, man. It's not his. He's not. It's he's not good. his fault. His defense are like matadors. See that you just hit. You just hit on the point I was about to make is that if you're going to roll with a Kirk Cousins or a Jimmy Garoppolo or a Matt Ryan or one of these tier three quarterbacks, you better have a damn oh. good defense if that's your game plan. Is Where to I have disagree, a middle of the road I don't offense. put Matt Ryan in tier three. I. Interesting. So you put him in the. You still even at this point put him in the Kyler Murray, Dak Prescott, Definitely. Russell Wilson category. So and Ooh, he is so productive. Wow. I mean, you know, I mean, he just and and he. Well, that's interesting. I, I I used to say that probably a year or two ago, but now I'm I'm not sold on Matt Ryan at all anymore because they're going through a rebuild and he doesn't have a lot of talent other than those two yeah, magical okay, wide well, receivers. Let's take a look at his stats from last year. Let me cue those up. I'm getting it right now. <laughs> this is going to be kind of funny because his numbers are exactly the same. As and look at those. Look at the consistency. Okay. So he has a career quarterback rating of 94.5. In last year, he was at 65%, 4,581 yards, 26 TDs to 11 t interceptions, 93.9 rating. In 2019, 66.2%, 4,466 yards, 26 TDs, and 14 interceptions, 92.1. That's, you know, and then in, look at 2018. I do stand corrected. The 2018 season, it looks like oh he finished God. sixth in the end. 69.4, 4,924 yards. 35 TDs to seven interceptions, a quarterback rating of 108.1, the second highest of his career other than the MVP. The MVP season that sticks right. out like a bit of a sore thumb. On those I mean, these, these, you know, every year, look at this. He's had over 4,000 yards. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years in a row. Who does that? That's all with TD to interception ratios that are outstanding. 
Yeah, the TD to interception one is big, but yards are always a tricky thing for me because yards are often a product of the offense you play in, and it's hard to use passing yards as a metric of who the best quarterbacks are. It's always been tough for me, although like 4,000 yards, 10 straight years, like that's a large enough sample size to know that, yeah, that's consistently a great quarterback. But when it's one year it's all, or two years, it's always really difficult to well, do the analysis But then on look that. at the other factors. If we averaged his completion percentage over that 10-year span, right, it looks to me like it's going to be at least 66.6%. Mm-hmm. So meaning he he completes two out of every three passes for 10 years. And then I may stand corrected on this one. I went back and I wanted to figure out what his QBR compares to in the league this year. And so here's the list. So Mahomes, Allen Rogers, Justin Herbert was four, Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, and Matt Ryan is eight. So he was the eighth best quarterback last year. I stand corrected on that one. It's just because everything else on the Falcons was so bad, he got dragged down a little bit. And from he, he really had a pretty did. good year and, last you know, he year. He makes that offense work. I, I've always loved. Well, I'm a Boston College alum, so I have an extra added interest in Matt Ryan. He, we always called him Matty Ice. I mean, he's the first quarterback since Flutie yeah. to get us ranked in the top ten of the country. And I mean, he came out of nowhere too. I mean, he was like Flutie came in as like a number three quarterback. And then when he got his chance, like Flutie, he never looked back. Um, You know, he was just really cool under pressure and delivered the football. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he should have been the first pick in the draft. He is, uh, I think, got the head for it, the arm. Um, He's a good leader. Um, He's not a crybaby. He's had a, some tough luck, uh, that Super Bowl 28-3, um, you know, and, but, uh, yeah, I, if I were the Falcons, I'd be looking at that. You, I could go 4,000, 66% and 4,500 yards for the next few years. Why? Well, I was about to say, do you think he can do it when he's 38, when the Falcons want to compete again? Cause this is a difficult thing I'm trying to figure out is, what is the what does the future look like for the Falcons? Because this is like off season well, one of a rebuild for them. And if and the other thing I was going to say is if Detroit's moving on from Stafford at thirty two, then what's the message of keeping Matt Ryan at thirty five, other than just the legacy thing and have him finish his career a Falcon? Because that can kind of do you to perpetual well, mediocrity. Matt Ryan's cut from the same cloth physically as Brady. I mean, he's in great shape. I don't see why he can't play five more years, and I think he wants to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, well, look That's at the consistency there. One. Look at the the durability. I mean, he's always playing. He's You can count on him, um, just as you could on Brady, except for that one year. I mean, so that... I love Matt Ryan. And I also acknowledge that the drop-offs are usually pretty quick. You don't see a lot of, like, slowly dropping off. It's usually, like, Drew Brees goes from being elite to being a non, not like a non-factor at the quarterback position. It's Eli Manning going from 4,000 yards to non-factor quarterback. Sometimes they're quick, and Brady is 
again, if you're the Falcons and your game plan is let's hope Matt Ryan can play till he's 41, it's I'm going to bet against you. You might be right. You would have been right on Brady four times over with four Super Bowls. I'm just not going to bet on an effective strategy of let's hope Matt Ryan is well, going to be good until I'll he's 41. If two conditionals, if the Falcons take Kyle Pitts, and if Matt Ryan stays healthy, which he has for the last 10 years, he'll pass for over 5,000 yards next year. Okay, we need, to, we need to arrange a bet here. We need to figure out – we need some sort of stakes here because we have another one that we arranged last week where myself and our draft guy will both do something outlandishly crazy if Mac Jones ever throws top right. eight in passing yards. But – if if Matt Ryan throws for five thousand yards next year, you can you can have me do something, eat or drink or whatever it might be, something ridiculously crazy. And if not, I'll throw it back your way. If Matt Ryan doesn't go for five thousand yards, we'll figure it out down the road. I'll I bet you a, snick, the top a Snickers head, bar. But keep... <laughs> oh, that's, that's always my favorite fallback betting option is the snickers bar because man those things are good thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.